This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. We choose to go to the moon. We choose Good to morning. go to the moon. Good morning. It's T-minus one hour, 29 minutes, and 53 seconds and counting in just an hour and a half. If all goes well, Apollo 11 astronauts Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins are to lift off from pad 39A out there on the voyage man always has dreamed about. Next stop for them, the moon. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twain. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. 1969. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Fifty years on, Apollo 11's moon mission still inspires optimism among Americans. Eight in ten in the latest CBS News poll say it represents the kind of achievement the U.S. is likely to have again. And most older Americans, looking back, say there's been nothing since that's inspired so much pride. A large majority today favors sending astronauts back to the moon and on to Mars. So what are the prospects for this? And what's happening down there at Cape Canaveral? I'm Anthony Salvanto. Welcome to this edition of Where'd You Get This Number? Space edition, Apollo 11 anniversary edition. And to find out what's going on, I am delighted to be joined by my colleague, Peter King, CBS News correspondent and host of the upcoming CBS News radio special, One Giant Leap Revisited. Peter's been down there at Cape Canaveral covering the space program for, what, 20 years, Peter? Uh, even more than that, Anthony, and it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks. Now, this is this is fun for you. Look, full disclosure for the audience, we're both space geeks. <laughs> yes, we are. We we ran into each other finally up here in New York, and we started talking about this, and we said, you know, when the 50th anniversary comes up, we, we got to do this because just, you know, folks, the download from Peter could just go on and on if you love this stuff like I do. Uh, and the full disclosure is the, the first thing I noticed about you besides uh, who you were was what you were wearing on your wrist at the time, and it was an Omega Speedmaster watch like the Apollo astronauts wore back in the 60s and 70s. So uh, that immediately endeared you to me. And, uh, you know, you're just thankful that I didn't just snatch it off your wrist because I've always wanted one. That's the giveaway. That's the giveaway. It's like I'm I get too motion sick. I was never qualified for the space program, but I can buy the (laughs) But I can buy the watch. That's as close as I get. Well, and for me, I never had the science chops, but I always thought that maybe as a kid, you know, uh, growing up that, uh, hey, maybe someday I could be a space reporter or something. But the fun thing about what you do is you bring it home for people in ways that they can relate to. And, you know, one of the things right off the bat, like I asked you, is what's going on at Cape Canaveral now? What is the state of things day to day? Are they revving up? Are they building new rockets? What's what's going on down there? 
We'll start with NASA because uh, NASA, Boeing, and SpaceX are revving up to hopefully start launching human beings from the Kennedy Space Center again for the first time since the space shuttles retired back in 2011. With SpaceX, it'll be the Dragon capsule that will take uh, astronauts and uh, presumably cosmonauts to the International Space Station. With Boeing, they will launch across the river from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station to go to the space station in their CST-100 or Starliner, as it's more commonly known. Now, associated with all that uh, is the commercial aspect of what's going on here. Uh, I'm looking out from my vantage point about three and a half miles away to launch pad 39a they call it historic 39a because that's where apollo 11 and all but one of the apollo missions flew from well it has been torn down since the shuttle era and reconstructed for spacex to launch its falcon rockets and the majority of falcon rockets the last couple of years have gone from there including the big Falcon Heavy, the heavy lift launch vehicle that can take very heavy payloads into space. Boeing is involved in the commercial space industry, too, along with Lockheed Martin with the United Launch Alliance that they've formed. Also here is Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin. And Sierra Nevada could be involved here, too, as well as other smaller companies that work in space. And well, the things you mentioned there from Boeing and, and the Bezos Project, among others, are private entities. How does that work? I mean, people think back to Apollo 11, right? It's NASA. It's a publicly funded entity. And how do they interface? Do they cooperate? Is there competition? What's How does that well, work? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, when it comes to anything going to the space station, NASA has hired Boeing and SpaceX. And NASA is a customer, paying customer, uh, putting payloads and astronauts aboard uh, the spacecraft that they launch or will launch from here. So in that way, it's cooperation, and it's got to be. There are times when uh, the communication between NASA and SpaceX, for example, has been kind of difficult. You may remember a few months ago, SpaceX had one of its Crew Dragon capsules blow up on the launch pad, big fire, and SpaceX was very, very quiet about that. And in an interview with Bill Harwood, our space consultant, and me a couple of months ago, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine said he was not happy with the level of communication from SpaceX to NASA as a vendor-to-customer service. And you say it's got to be a partnership there. And is that just about the money, or is there specific technical know-how now? Like when people look back on Apollo 11, we often hear the stories of how from schools to universities and on up that it funded and it promoted a lot of different kinds of engineers and computer scientists and material scientists, etc. Well, it's got to be a partnership because there's tax money involved. And NASA has certain requirements and standards, for example, when it comes to a spacecraft on which it's putting cargo and human beings. And SpaceX and Boeing both have to meet those standards in order for all of this to happen. So, And there are other things, too, that are, uh, you know, real inside baseball things. But, look, there are a lot of hands in the pie, a lot of fingers in the pie when it comes to this. And it's not just about NASA. It's not just about SpaceX and Boeing and the companies. But it's about uh, contractors, subcontractors, 
the people who are paying to put their experiments aboard the space station and, and those kinds of things. Tell me about some of those experiments and more broadly, what exactly is it they're trying to do? Are they trying to simulate or practice for another moon landing? Are some of these rockets aimed to be long distance rockets that can go to Mars? What What is the objective of each of these projects? Well, the, the experiments uh, are, are all involving microgravity and uh, things from, you know, science and medical that uh, might uh, be interesting to see in terms of reactions to microgravity. Reactions thing, being how, how human beings can survive in space for long periods of time, what happens yeah, to us? Absolutely. And, and can you develop things like protein crystals? Can you grow things in space? So uh, that we can eat on a long-distance voyage? Ex- exactly. And, and that actually is really important because you can't take a Mars mission, for example, would be at least a two- to three-year mission, six months out, six months back. And, you know, you take some time to be around and on Mars. And you can't take all the food with you. You can't take three years' worth of food with you. It's just impossible. So you'd have to be able to grow stuff out there. Uh, what about um, turning urine into water. Now, it sounds really gross for you and me, but they've been doing that on the International Space Station for about a decade or so with a a device they've got up there that helps them convert urine waste into drinking water and, uh, by all accounts, quite delicious drinking water. There are all kinds of medical experiments going on and and so on and so forth. So In our poll, Peter, 31% of people said that they would go to Mars or the moon if, if offered the chance. I, that that number may go down after hearing your, uh, your description there. Uh. <laughs> you know, you do what it takes. You know, we, in the news business, I often say you got to make the donuts. Well, in space, you really have to make the donuts to make it happen. And, uh, you know, the technology is, has gotten uh, incredibly good. But what you can't do is launch three years worth of stuff on one or two rockets. It's just physically impossible, physically cost prohibitive. This is heavy stuff. You can't take three years worth of water with you into space. It just doesn't work that way. Tell us about the propulsion, because when we watch, when we hear your special and we watch the reviews of the the tapes of Apollo 11, we know that they were basically sitting on what was the equivalent of a small nuclear bomb in terms of force to get that thing off the launch pad and into orbit. But what is propulsion like today? How has it changed? And can we go any faster? Would that help us get to the moon faster or ultimately get to the Mar- get to Mars? Propulsion really uh, hasn't changed all that much in the past uh, 40 or 50 years. Uh, you still have liquid-fueled and solid-fueled rockets, and that's what's working right now. But everybody, look, we all loved warp drive from uh, Star Trek back in the day. And there is so much talk about nuclear propulsion and trying to develop something that would be super fast and uh, somehow more energy efficient to shorten that six or seven month journey to Mars. Electronic ion propulsion, for example, uh, to go with nuclear propulsion. Jargon alert. Uh, uh, hold on a second, Peter, and we're getting the jargon alert buzzer here. I think the guys in the studio want to explain just what it is we're talking about. Take it away, guys. Welcome to Jargon Alert. I'm Jason, the intern. I'm Sam, the other intern. All right, let's back up there for a moment. Okay, Sam, I'm going to need your help with this one. Ion drives? Yeah, so it sounds like science fiction, but the biggest issue with the system we currently have, rocket fuel, is that it just eventually runs out. 
So NASA has been spending a lot of time researching other methods for long-distance travel. Two of the biggest ones are ion engines and solar sails. And can you break down each of those for me? So an ion drive, an ion engine, it uses electromagnetic fields to accelerate atoms. And what that does is that allows a ship to gain speed very slowly, but over long distances. So an ion drive will keep going for months, whereas a rocket engine only goes for an average of nine minutes or so. We've actually used them before in our Dawn spacecraft. So these are very contemporary. And what about solar sails? Solar sails are a bit more science fiction, we'll call it. Um, The idea is basically to use large reflective sails that gather the momentum of light from the sun to push the ship forward. Uh, They're going to end up being really impractical for larger manned spaceflight, but the idea is feasible for smaller probes. Sorry for the interruption. Now back to the show. (laughs) Okay, thanks, guys. Polling has its issues, but uh, ion propulsion is not one of them. <laughs> it's, it's, um, well, well, I mean, look, part of this, part of the question about what the objective is comes from the historical context, which is that space exploration, including, let's face it, the Apollo program has often been driven by competition, right? We thought the U.S. thought the Russians were going to get there first and we thought space would become the next military zone. Maybe it still will. And then we've got, of course, the history of exploration also to get materials, to get minerals, what have you. Some people think they might be out there on these other on these other planets. Is that what is driving some of this? And is competition from other countries now that we see them getting increasingly involved in space, driving things down there at the Cape? Well, it absolutely is. And it's driving. uh, It really kind of is driving the bus. Uh, President Trump wants uh, the U.S. back on the moon by 2024. Humans back on the moon by 2024. Whether that's going to happen is a big question. But I think part of what's driving that is that uh, China is actively trying to put humans on the moon for the first time for them. They landed a spacecraft on the far, not dark, but far side of the moon. Explain to people why it's the far side and not the dark side. Well, it's not the dark side because the sun shines there. Because how's that for how's that for a nice simple explanation? <laughs> right, because because the the moon also rotates. It's just it rotates as it faces the Earth, so we never see the other side. But the sun. No, does we it. always see we always see the uh, front side of the moon. We don't see the back side of the moon, but the sun does, and it's never dark. So that's why it's the far side. But yeah, I I, I think the Trump administration certainly uh, officials there feel the pressure because China is uh, very active in trying to get its own lunar program going on. And, you know, the Chinese space program has been very, very slow and uh, meticulous in developing. They've they've only had a handful of human space flights uh, that started in the early 2000s and uh, nothing is going quickly. Um, I I was going to say, tell me a little bit more about the politics of this. When I look at the polling, when I see people say that they're, they want to go back to the moon, it's bipartisan. Um, yes, the Trump administration is pushing for it, but there's Democrats who say we should go back as well. What's the sense down there on the Cape? Does politics play into this or is this a bipartisan or a nonpartisan scientific effort down there? Well, I'm not so sure that it is any that that it's a, a 
partisan feeling down here. I think people are just really, really happy to be back in the space business uh, in a big way because there were so many thousands of jobs, Anthony, that were lost after the space shuttle stopped flying. It's, it's not so much a political issue here. It's a matter of economics and jobs. So last thing, Peter, look ahead for us. What do we see next? What's the next big thing that you think people are going to gather around that TV set and say, wow? In the nearest future, we've got uh, SpaceX and Boeing hoping to take humans from here at Kennedy to the International Space Station and bring them back safely. That'd be tourists or? Well, that's going to be part of it, too. Uh, The uh, station is now open to private astronauts, if you will, who will spend a small fortune to spend perhaps uh, 10 days or a couple of weeks or a month aboard the space station. There are private companies who are developing space stations of their own. Google Bigelow Aerospace, because they have been the pioneer in inflatable space habitats. Uh, I think they're probably going to be in the lead on this because they want private customers, maybe some NASA work. Beyond that, you've got Virgin Galactic that will take people up for short suborbital space experiences for, um, I think the price is now up to about 250 grand a piece. They've been test flying out in the Mojave Desert. You've got Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin who plan the same thing. And you have other companies that are working on it. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk has been talking about, I'd like to send 100 people to Mars. And you don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't bet against him, but it's uh, that's a tough nut to crack. Now, looking further down the road, again, NASA has a mandate to send humans back to the moon by 2024. But there are a lot of long poles in that one. First of all, there's no lunar lander. They have just awarded a contract for the Lunar Gateway Space Station. They think they want to use as a way station around the moon before anybody lands. That would be Uh, something in orbit around the moon that could shuttle people up and back from the surface? Correct. Uh, The Orion spacecraft that would be the command module, if you will, for the so-called Artemis project. That is under development, but it's way behind schedule. It's only flown once. Artemis is the code name we should watch for for things Mars-related? No, Artemis is the uh, moon. Is moon. Is the moon project, and NASA hopes that will pick up some traction the way Apollo did. Gotcha. But here's the thing. The monster rocket that will have to be the base for all of this, the Space Launch System, or SLS, that has yet to fly in any way, shape, or form. And all of this has to happen in the next five years. There are a lot of people who are skeptical. Oh, and I almost forgot, perhaps, the biggest obstacle of all of this. Remember this phrase from the right stuff, no bucks, no buck Rogers. <laughs> Mr. Trump has requested about $1.6 extra billion in the next budget to help jumpstart Project Artemis. Congress has to approve that. And then what happens after that? What about money for the year after that? And the year after that? And the year after that? And we've heard anywhere from... 10 to $30 billion more over that time period to send astronauts back to the moon. And that's where polling comes back around into play. If people want it and they think it's worthwhile, maybe it's more likely uh, that it happens. Well, people want it and they think it's worthwhile and uh, they're willing to pay for it. 
then it could happen. I mean, Dan Golden, who was the administrator of NASA when I first started covering the program more than 20 years ago, used to say that uh, the shuttle program and uh, the then-fledgling space station program would cost uh, the equivalent of perhaps uh, one pizza per American per year to keep funding or increase the funding a little bit. Which is a, which is a, a fair point that people often make with regard to the federal budget. These numbers are, of course, very large in raw dollar terms, but as percentages of the budget, they are slivers. Absolutely. Back in, uh, in the day when uh, we were racing the Russians to get to the moon and win the space race, the NASA budget was nearly 5% of the entire budget. Now it's, uh, I think it's uh, one half of 1% or, or something close to that. So it's going to be interesting to see where all of this goes monetarily. Peter, I could do this all day, but I think we have. I think we have. <laughs> I, think, I think for the most part we have. Um, but uh, but let's let's thank our listeners here, um, and because this has been this has been terrific. And you know what? We'll continue it. So stay tuned as things develop. Uh, we'll come back around on this stuff. It's uh, it's just fantastic. Thanks, man. Well, thank you. And for everybody out there, uh, thank you for listening. Thanks to everyone at CBS News Radio, to Alan Pang, our intrepid producer. And if you like uh, what you've heard, give us feedback, subscribe, uh, rate us, and follow us at, at Get This Number. Until next time, I am Anthony Salvanto for my colleague Peter King down there at Cape Canaveral. And don't forget to uh, listen to his special. Uh, One Giant Leap Revisited for more. Uh, In the meantime, thanks much, and I'll see you here next week. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.